stories. Great guy. So I'm thinking, all right, we got this in the bag. Let me just find some New Testament references to Joseph, and, uh, and we'll be able to apply it to, like, how we should be like Joseph when we follow Jesus, and we'll be good to go, right? So I start going, and, you know, I'm using my online resources. I'm looking through the Bible, and I, I'm looking for, okay, what are examples in the New Testament where they talk about Joseph's character and Joseph's life? And I studied, and I found not 10, not 20, not 100, uh, but two. There are two references to Joseph in the New Testament. The first one is in the book of Acts. Stephen talks about Joseph for a little bit. He's talking about the, the scope of the Old Testament. He, he, he talks about how God's people were preserved through God's promise to Abraham. And when he focuses on Joseph, he's really talking about uh, how his brothers uh, were jealous. and They tried to kill him, but Joseph was protected for the sake of God's covenant. So it's not really about Joseph. So I was like, well, that's kind of, that's okay. It's a little disappointing. So I'm looking for this great example of, of who Joseph is. Uh, but, but then I found this verse, and this uh, really set the course for the sermon this morning. Um, this is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22. I want you to think about how you want to be remembered, and I want you to, to hear this verse about the life of Joseph. It says, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Let me, I don't think you caught the grandeur. Hold on, hold on. Let me read it again. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, one, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and two, gave directions concerning his bones. I mean, I was so confused. Jo I was reading through the story of Joseph and he endured so much. He did so many good things. He was so successful. And this is what they talk about Joseph about in the New Testament? I, so this, this totally radically changed, transformed my, my viewpoint on this guy's life. Um, and, and I hope walking back through this, we'll be able to change our perspective too. Because clearly, uh, comparing Joseph's life and character and what he did to the promises of God that he pointed to, it's no comparison. The promises of God in the life of Joseph are what we should look at this morning. We need to see clearly why is it so important that we would ignore everything else that Joseph went through as, as we're about to walk through in his life, that, that what the New Testament writer in Hebrews wants us to remember is that he made mention of what God had promised to do. Why is that so important? We want to look at that this morning and hopefully also understand then what God and his promises mean for our lives as well. So, uh, let's walk through this together. I, I, I want us to see that in, in the life of Joseph, I think this is a, a predominant overarching theme that if you're write, writing notes this morning, you can write down this little sentence. God, in his providence, always overcomes evil to fulfill his promises. Joseph li Joseph's life is, is full of evil. It's full of trouble. And yet what we see is that despite it all, God is faithful. In his providence, in his sovereignty over time and human history, he is faithful to fulfill his promises. It's amazing to see what God does in the life of Joseph uh, to do that. And so let's walk through, I, I had you turn to Genesis chapter 37, and we're going to go through these chapters in overview um, and, and try to see, okay, wh what is it that God was doing? What, what do we learn about God fulfilling his promises in this guy's life? Well, Joseph, um, to give us a little background here, he was the 11th son of Jacob. We've talked about three men prior to this. Abraham, Isaac, 
Last week, Jacob, that James preached on, and, and we, we got a great look at the life of, of Jacob, uh, this man who was so far from perfect, yet uh, one whom God wanted to bless so that he would be a blessing to others. That was his promise to Abraham in the beginning, and he's carried it on through Abraham's grandson, Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons uh, through four different women, two wives and their servants, and Jacob, uh, his favorite son was Joseph. Uh, Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob's favorite wife, and that statement should give you some red flags, <laughs> um, right? <laughs> I mean, this is not a healthy family situation, uh, and yet this is, this is Joseph's life. He's just a kid. He's 17 years old. Uh, I'd say a kid. He's older, though. He's, he's close to being an adult in our culture, and cer- certainly in that culture has already had responsibilities. He's pastoring uh, Jacob's flock, Jacob's sheep with his brothers, Uh, He's actually uh, reporting on when his brothers are doing bad things, and we as readers wouldn't be surprised. We've already seen his brothers Simeon and Levi do some awful things. Reuben, the oldest, has done an awful thing. Uh, These brothers are not good characters in in Scripture, right? Uh, They are violent. They are deceitful. They're promiscuous. Um, These are not good guys, and yet Joseph, it seems, uh, is, is one who reports on their evil behavior, and tries to serve his father and, and, uh, and do well, right? And so uh, we, <laughs> we, we see this little example of, of Jacob's favoritism where he makes this uh, wonderful coat, this beautiful coat, described a, a coat of many colors, whatever it looked like. The point is, it was Joseph's favoritism coat. And it was a symbol of this... Uh <laughs> In balance of, of, of love, right, from Jacob as a father towards Joseph. And Joseph's brothers hated it. I mean, some of us can relate. We've, we've just got siblings or people in our family or certain people in our lives that they just seem, maybe it's that person in your, in your office that you, your boss loves for whatever reason. It's just they're clearly the favorite. Um, I don't know what it is. No pointing fingers here. Uh, But we all have experienced favoritism, and that's what made Joseph's brothers so angry. And then, (laughs) not not only that, Joseph, uh, he he was a guy who had a lot of dreams. His life is full of these dreams that he would have uh, that ended up being prophetic, that God would speak uh, through, as it were. And so uh, he had a couple dreams, one about some sheaves of wheat or grain, and another about uh, the sun, moon, and stars. And the point of the dreams was that everything was bowing down to him. So if you're the favorite son, and you have a couple dreams like that, it's, it's not what your family wants to hear, right? The brothers hear about these dreams where everyone's bowing down to him, uh, and they hate him even more for it. They do not like Joseph. There's so much conflict and tension that even his father rebukes him. For the father lo- that loves him so much is also like, do you really think we're going to bow down to you, Joseph? You should maybe chill on the dreams. and every, I mean, you already got a coat, man. Um, but this is, this is the situation we enter into. This favoritism, these dreams, and this 17-year-old kid uh, that Jacob then sends out into the field. And there's this one day where his, his brothers see Joseph coming and they think, we're going to kill him. We want to end this guy. We're, we hate him so much that we want to take his life. This should remind us of the story of Cain and Abel. This story where you have a brother 
who hates the other brother so much he would just rather him not be here, rather him not live. And yet what we see in the, this first chapter of Joseph's life is that for the sake of God's promises, God is going to protect Joseph from the death that would result from sin. That's our first uh, point after that summary statement this morning. God protects us even, we'll learn, from the death that results from sin. And he does so through uh, an unlikely character here. Reuben, the oldest, the one who I said was a you know, listed among these brothers, violent, evil, promiscuous, all these things. Uh, he feels bad about it. And so he's like, well, okay, we shouldn't kill Joseph. So, so he feels bad about that, but he, he doesn't feel bold enough to keep his brothers from killing him and oppose him. So he just kind of redirects. He says, okay, let's not kill him. Let's throw him in this pit. Let's leave him there. And Reuben's thinking, well, I'll come back later and I'll, I'll rescue him. And then I'll make good with my father. And this will be kind of a way to kind of reconcile a little bit. Um, so that's Reuben's plan. But when they throw him in this pit, they then break for lunch. And Judah, another brother of Joseph, has this great idea. Guys, if Reuben's not going to let us kill him, let's at least make a buck. And they see some slave traders coming by. And so they sell Joseph into slavery. I mean, what a horrible situation. Horrible, horrible. What is happening here? God is preserving his people through this situation. Believe it or not, it looks like there is nothing good that's happening here. There can be no redemption from this. Um, and by the way, Joseph, he hasn't really done anything here, right? Jo Joseph is as innocent as it were as Abel. And yet the reason his life is saved is that God is going to work through Joseph's life to, to preserve this family, to preserve his promises to his people. He had promised Abraham back in Genesis 12 and then 15 and 17, I, I will bless you. I'm going to make you into a great nation that will bless the world, the nations of the world. And to do that, God is preserving Joseph's life here. It, it's, it's an amazing picture uh, of God's faithfulness to do so. Um, and yet we need to consider that for our own lives, when we talk about God protecting us from a death that would result from sin, um, we have from God a way better protection and rescue from death from an even worse pit of despair and sin. We are not so much like Joseph, if we're honest. We're a lot more like the brothers. We also are deceitful. Uh, we're not bold. Uh, rather than standing up for the truth, we'll just redirect it a little bit, you know, to feel a little bit better to take it for our own advantage. Um, we, we are sinful, as the Bible teaches us. As we've seen in the book of Genesis from the very beginning, when God says, we say, did, did God actually say? And then we turn our own way. And yet God, even through the, 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 the family of Israel, even through these covenant promises that we're seeing at the end of Genesis, all that points to a Messiah, one who is a true rescuer, not a temporary one from a temporary pit in a physical situation, but an eternal rescuer who lived a perfect and sinless life, who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, and who rose again from the grave so that we would be rescued from death. That's what the author of Hebrews describes Jesus as in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. He says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, 
himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What does that mean? God, through Joseph being protected from death, but still thrown into a pit, uh, brought about uh, the salvation, salvation for Israel, for that family. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, God protects us from the pit of despair because Jesus himself died. Jesus himself gave his life for those who were sinful, for those brothers around him who wanted him dead, and he willingly walked through it so that we might be protected from what the Bible calls the second death. And another pit in Revelation where those who do not believe in Jesus are thrown in eternally, a pit of despair and of God's righteous judgment against sin. And if you're here this morning and you're, you're listening to this story of this pit of despair, you may have some situations in your life uh, that, that sound difficult, that feel uh, like they're the lowest point you could possibly be at. But I promise you, the, the righteous judgment of God for sin is the absolute lowest pit any of us could be thrown into. It is the most permanent death any of us could ever face. But God sent his son to rescue us from that death, to protect us from it eternally, so that like Joseph, we would be able to have life and eventually be able to multiply and bear fruit for him. Let's remember that this morning. Church, let, let's celebrate that we have been protected from a death that we deserved, even as we remember Joseph, who was protected from a death that he didn't. So again, God protects us from the death that results from sin. And by the way, I, I, we don't have time for it this morning, but I, I believe chapter 38 also holds that truth, not in the life of Joseph, but we shift gears and look at his brother Judah, who uh, commits a horrible act of faithlessness uh, with his daughter-in-law, uh, Tamar. And yet, God protects Tamar from death for the same reason he protects Joseph from death, which is to fulfill his covenant promises. So I invite you to go back and read that later in light of this whole story and, and see God's protection from death in this section. But the next thing that we see as we, as we turn back to looking at Joseph in Genesis uh, chapters 39 and 40, we see that God is present with us in suffering and temptation. That's what he does for Joseph. God is with Joseph. Over in Egypt, God's, uh, or Joseph's been sold as a slave, and he's working for a guy named Potiphar. And Joseph becomes so successful in Potiphar's house, he's, he, he goes from being the lowest slave in the house to being the overseer of all the servants in the house. A great position of honor and authority. Uh, and the thing about this, this, this section here, if you, if you want to look with me, um, if you're looking for, again, character qualities of Joseph in chapter 39, okay, well, why was Joseph so successful? Maybe he was really, really good with his time. Maybe he had things really scheduled out. Or, or maybe he was just a really clear communicator with the other servants. Or may, I, I don't know. There's a bunch of things we could, we could have conjecture for. But what the Bible says that gave Joseph success is in verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. Is that what we count as success? I, is that where we stand on whenever we're considering our own lives? In the life of Joseph, 
again, I think we have so many opportunities. I, I, I have had them this week. I have had them this morning to try to find my success in my strategy, my actions, my character. But the thing is, what's about to happen to Joseph is going to reverse all those fortunes. He's going to go from being an overseer of the house back to being the lowest of the low. He's about to be put in prison. And the end of the chapter says the same thing. The Lord was with him. I think it's just important for us to pause and consider. If God has protected us from death and he's given us life in Jesus Christ, then Jesus, who the Bible describes is Emmanuel, God with us, has become our very promise of God's presence with us. He's sent his Holy Spirit. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is now residing in us. It's now the power of God that gives us the strength to have the life that he has called us by faith to live. And so we need to think carefully about our hearts and about our minds and our motivations when we walk through this Christian life. If we are trying to be successful like, like Joseph, the Bible does not give us a list of strategies and a list of actions to take, but simply the promise that God was with him and that this man was living in light of that promise. We need Christians to stand on that as our hope day in and day out. Because in suffering, again, that, that, that's what gives us hope. The, the, the life of Joseph is, is such a reminder that the things that we go through the difficulties that we face for the vast majority of our lives. It's not a reflection of our character and our actions and our strategies. There are so many people in this world who are born into horrible situations, whose families abuse them, whose families mistreat them, just like Joseph faced here. And it would be so easy to in the Christian faith, when we're preaching the gospel to abandon what Jesus has promised through his uh, rescue that he's offered us, through his presence, and try to come up with strategies to make our lives better. That is not the hope that God has given in his word. That's not the life that God has promised. We are promised, in fact, suffering. And our hope is that in the midst of it, Jesus through his spirit, is with us. And when Jesus is with us, through his spirit, we'll see, like in Joseph's life, that God has also given us the power, through his presence, to fight temptation and sin. That's what Joseph experiences here. Chapter 39 is a story where Joseph becomes, again, so successful. He's the overseer of this house. He's so popular that Potiphar's wife would rather become Joseph's wife, so to speak. And so it's not just this one-time thing either. In fact, uh, uh, chapter 39, where is it? Verse 10. She, look at it. And as she spoke to, to Joseph day after day, this was happening over and over. She is tempting Joseph over and over and over, day after day. And what does it say? He would not listen to her, lie beside her, or to be with her. What a great example that when God is present with those walking in faith, that they are consistently, day after day, fleeing from sin. The New Testament talks about this. When, when Paul talks about our bodies being a temple of the Holy Spirit, do those verses sound familiar, th those phrases? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When Paul talks about that, he is almost always talking about it in the context of our holiness and our fleeing sin. 
just, just to give you one example, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. Listen to what Paul says. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is how Joseph had the power to fight temptation. It was not, again, because of some strategy or some list of actions. Some of those may be secondarily helpful, but the primary thing Moses wants us to know is that because God is with Joseph, he's able to endure suffering and fight temptation. That's the same hope for the Christian. And by the way, it's an even better hope than what Joseph had. Because Jesus teaches us that his own spirit is what dwells in us. The, the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead, don't think that that's just saved for the big moments in life. Don't just think that relying on the presence of God is for those big mountaintop experiences or trying to figure out what's happening next to No, no, no. It's for day after day resisting of temptation. The smallest and seemingly most insignificant thing that you think, no one will care about this. No one will find out about this. This private habit, this conversation, this account I follow on social media, whatever it is, the Holy Spirit of God is present with you so that you would have the power to fight it, to flee it, to run away from it. It's so, it would be silly. The Olympics are happening right now, and I haven't been watching very much Olympics. But I was thinking about it this week. It would be silly to run a race and you hold your breath the whole time so that once you get across the finish line, then, oh, okay, now I can take a breath. That would be the silliest sport to watch, especially if they had to run a marathon. You'd have bodies laying all over across the track because you have to breathe to run. So why in the Christian walk, why do we approach temptation and sin as if we are going to run in our own strength, run while holding our breath, if you will, to get to God, to get to his presence? That's not the way the Christian life works. When we are protected from death and rescued from sin and God's spirit comes to dwell with us, we breathe in the spirit of God and run flee, fight, not in our own strength, but in the strength of the God who's with us. God protects us from the death that results from sin. He's present with us in suffering and temptation. In this last uh, kind of major section of Joseph's life, we see that God provides fruitfulness and multiplication to bless the nations. We see that in Genesis chapters 41 through 47. There's a middle period of time after uh, Joseph gets framed by Potiphar's wife. Another unfortunate situation regarding Joseph's apparel uh, again. And he ends up in prison. Again, unjustly. And he continues to have dreams. There's, there's two servants of Pharaoh and they come in and he has, they have dreams that he wants to uh, uh, interpret for them. And he's able to, again, by the power of God, and uh, as a result, it seems like he might have this option of getting out of prison, but uh, unfortunately, uh, the one who gets out of prison does not remember him. He waits another two years. At this point, we're uh, near Joseph's 30th year of life. He's been in prison as a slave, as a servant for uh, 13 years of his life, right? And yet, 
for this particular time, for God's purposes, God sends Pharaoh dreams that need to be interpreted. And the servant that was released from prison remembers Joseph finally after two years. He's like, oh yeah, I forgot. I made a promise to this guy. Okay, so they get Joseph out of prison and they tell him about these dreams. And essentially these dreams are about the future, about the next 14 years, that there's going to be seven years of plenty where harvest is plentiful and there's tons to eat and tons to have. The economy's going great. After that, there's going to be seven years of famine, seven years of lack. And so Joseph's able to interpret these dreams, right? And he tells Pharaoh, this is what's going to happen. And you need, you need to set a guy who's strategic and smart and who, who can uh, save up enough in the seven years of plenty to last the seven years of famine. And Pharaoh says, sounds great. You're the guy. And he sets him up above everybody else in his house. And he becomes uh, like the guy in Egypt over this plan to save them from the years of famine, but also just over Pharaoh's house. Uh, Pharaoh gives them a parade. He's this big celebration. Uh, Joseph gets a wife and he has two kids. I mean, it seemingly overnight, Joseph's fortunes change. It's, it's amazing to see. And we might think, okay, this is the climax of the story. Joseph's life got better and he, he's got a wife and kids now. This is happily ever after. The rom-com is, is done. The good movie feelings are all here and we're done. It's not the climax at all. Because Joseph's brothers are about to come back on the scene. And we're going to see what happens when a man whose fortunes have been reversed encounters those who once wronged him, right? It's going to be really interesting to see. The fruitfulness we're looking for here is not a physical fruitfulness. It's a spiritual fruitfulness in this section. That's the fruitfulness that God is providing through this. And here's what happens. Uh, again, in brief here, Joseph's brothers, once the years of famine hit, they're experiencing it outside of Egypt. And so Jacob, their father, says, okay, we're, we're going to die if we don't have food. I've heard that there's a lot of food in Egypt. You need to go to this guy that's head over what's happening in Egypt because they're doing great and they've got plenty of food. You need to go and buy food from him. So Joseph's brothers show up and don't realize they're showing up at Joseph's house <laughs> to buy food from the brother that they tried to kill. Amazing reversal that happens here. Joseph sees who his brothers are. He recognizes them. But again, it's been 13 years. So his brothers apparently don't recognize him. He's probably uh, dressed in, in Egyptian garb um, a, as, a, as a leading servant, as a, as a ruler even. And so uh, he just doesn't look at all like the brother who was 17 that they threw into a pit. Uh, and so they don't recognize him, but Joseph sees them. And I think here we get a bad example of where Joseph, rather than speaking the truth, rather than saying, I'm so glad you're here, brothers, because now I can provide for you. The Bible says that Joseph treats them roughly. He treats them harshly. And we see over the next several chapters, he tests them. He deceives them. He pretends to be an idol worshiper. He keeps back Simeon in bondage and sends them back to their father to try to get his younger brother, Benjamin. And I think, it's, it's unclear here, but Joseph starts showing favoritism to his younger brother, Benjamin. Remember I said that the 12 brothers were from these four different ladies? Well, Joseph and Benjamin are two sons of Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife. 
And I think Joseph maybe is trying to figure out, he's wrestling with this bitterness. He's wrestling with what God has given him and trying to decide, what am I going to do with this? Am I really going to trust this, this group of people? Did God actually say that God's going to bless Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his family and on from there? Because I wonder if it's just me and, and Ben. I wonder if maybe just our local family will be blessed and, and we can send them back. So he puts a silver cup in, in Benjamin's bag and, and frames him for, for stealing this cup. And he's going to use it to try to split up the family and get Benjamin and send the rest of his brothers back. But I want you to see this amazing moment. You can turn through these several chapters we're blowing through here, but uh, 44, verse 18. Look what changes the heart of Joseph. Then Judah, it says in Genesis 44, 18, went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word to my Lord to you. Let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. Judah then goes on to describe everything that's happened in his life. He, he's just trying to be honest. He's broken over the situation. He's broken over the situation where now these brothers have been framed for theft, and uh, Benjamin's life is on the line. Benjamin, now the only other son of Jacob that he loves so much. And Judah says, I've got to be honest with you. I don't know what else to do. We, we've wronged our brothers in the past, and we, we're, we're here. We don't have anything else. I don't know what else to do. That's the moment where Joseph's heart changed. That's why in chapter 45, that first verse, it says, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go up for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. This is a dramatic change in the heart of Joseph that happens here because Judah, I believe, repented. Judah, the one who had had the idea of selling his brother into slavery to get rid of Joseph, is now saying, take, take my life instead for my younger brother, Benjamin. I, I don't know what else there is to do. Take, I, I pledge my life instead. It's only after this that we see the reconciliation of these brothers and the provision for Israel's family, for Jacob's family to be able to live. I think there's an, a, a major lesson for us in this moment. We're thinking about fruitfulness. It, it, it only begins after repentance. God did not save this family through Joseph's strategy, and there's great. He, did he use the things that Joseph did to save the food? Yes, absolutely, 100%. But realize, before Judah speaks, the plan is, take Benjamin, get rid of the rest of you guys. But through this moment of repentance, God steps in, and he, he reverses what's happening. And suddenly, you, you go from this, this family that could not be further apart. This dude is pretending he doesn't even know them, Every time they come in the room and he gets upset, he leaves the room and he's crying and he's got to come back in. It's an awful situation. That is not the sign of a healthy family. And yet because of this moment of honest repentance and honest brokenness over sin and this situation, Joseph's heart is changed. And God uses it 
to re-knit this family together. That's why Joseph says what he does in chapter 45, verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And immediately after that, he says, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Not because that wasn't the wrong thing to do, right? Not because that didn't create an awful, awful season of Joseph's life for 17 years, for 13 years, sorry. But, but why? Don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Why? For God sent me before you to preserve life. God, Joseph knew, was using this situation to provide for the family of Israel and to begin to unfold the promises that he had made to Abraham. The covenant that me, he had made with him, that he, he said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Uh, your offspring will multiply. They'll be fruitful. You're going to be in a foreign land, and you're going to take great possessions in it, and then I, I, I will lead you out of that place. Um, that'll be fulfilled fully at the end of Exodus, or, or midway through Exodus, right? 400 years from now. But we're seeing the promises of God begin to unfold even in this moment where this family that's about to be killed by famine is established in Egypt and made fruitful. I want you to turn and look at chapter 47. Because uh, after they reconcile, he sends for, for Jacob, his father, and the rest of the, this whole family, this whole clan, to come and settle in Egypt. And Joseph settles them there. He gives them the food that they need. He gives them a place to live where they can worship God freely and not be influenced by the Egyptians' idol worship around them and yet still experience uh, the, the prosperity uh, of, of Egypt that they're experiencing right now because of Joseph's leadership. He does all of this. And then look at what it says in verse 27 of chapter 47. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. When we think about the book of Genesis, that verse should explode off the page. Because when God made man in the, in the very beginning, what did he command him to do? Be fruitful and multiply. And he gave them commands and provision to be able to do so in the place of his promises, in the place of his covenant relationship with Adam and Eve. And yet they took the and God said of what he had done for them and went, well, did God actually really say that? And then turned their own way. And sin entered the world. And brokenness entered the world. Instead of God's covenant promises in his family multiplying on itself and becoming fruitful over and over and over, you see sin multiply rapidly. That, that's even still the story of Joseph in so many ways is, is, again, still God working in and through and despite this multiplying sin, this broken human world. We still see that today. But it's intentional that Moses, for the first time in the whole book, by the way, explicitly says that the people of Israel were fruitful and multiplied greatly. We, we've seen it happen by God's grace through guys like Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is the first time Moses as the author says it explicitly. I believe in many ways this is kind of the, the true end and, and, and kind of pinnacle, as it were, of the book of Genesis. Because God is making good on his promises to multiply his people and make sure that they bear fruit. Christian, God has called us to do the same. 
And I want us to consider the fact that when we are called to be fruitful and to multiply, that's a spiritual reality. It's not based on our strategies and actions and the things that we would do to make our family great, to make our name great, to make the name of this church, the fields great, or anything like that. It's about doing what Christ has called us to do, to be fruitful and multiply by making disciples of all nations. And don't miss that little, that little phrase at the end here. It's like that God, uh, well, let me look at it. Let me make sure I say it right. God provides fruitfulness and multiplication. Why? To bless the nations. Right? That was the promise he made to Abraham. That through you, I'm going to bless all peoples. Through us in Christ, we have been called to do the same. In Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit comes and Peter preaches to the people there, there are all nations, as it were, represented there. And they're hearing the gospel being preached uh, and, and they're experiencing repentance and true conversion from their hearts for the first time. They're cut to the heart when they hear the truth about what happened to Jesus. That they killed the Messiah. That they, like Joseph's brothers, didn't catch what God was doing in his promises. And in the name of traditions or selfish ambition or whatever it was they were focusing on, instead killed the one who God was sending to save his people. And they're cut to the heart. They say, what do we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does it say after that in Acts 2 that happens? It, it describes the church. That they were breaking bread together. That they were worshiping together regularly. They were sharing things together. They, they were multiplying themselves by making disciples of others. And many were being added to their number. All of those things are the fruitfulness that God desires for his people now in his church. It's what he wants for us. That we who have been brought to repentance, that when God rescues us, he brings us to an understanding of, uh, I, I don't know what else to do. I'm broken over my sin. I have no other hope. And then after that, God makes us fruitful and multiply as his spirit works in us to make disciples, to break bread together, to worship, to serve one another, to do all the things the New Testament calls us to do in the various letters that, that's written to the churches there. That's the fruitfulness that God desires to us. And ultimately, again, this is so that the nations would be blessed, so that the commission that Jesus gave his disciples would be true, that we would make disciples of all nations. I, I wish I had more time to unpack that. But I think, I think it's so good for us to remember those, those main three things. God protects us from death that results from sin. God's present with us in suffering temptation. And God provides fruitfulness and multiplication to bless the nations through us. In the life of Joseph, that's how we see God fulfilling his promises. And yet the book of Genesis isn't done, right? There's, there's more to go. And we still have that weird verse in Hebrews about he made mention of the Exodus and he did something about his bones. We better figure that out, right? So th if this is what happened in Joseph's life, then as he approached the very end of his life, this sort of epilogue, uh, if you will, the book of Genesis, what, what, what happens here? Well, James described it a little bit for us last week that at, at once Jacob's family and Joseph's family, once they're reunited in Egypt, Jacob, before he dies, he blesses each of his sons, right? And, and uh, there's, we could walk through everyone. We could do a whole series on all the blessings and, and all the things that are talked about for these different brothers. Uh, but I want to just point out, too, to Joseph, he promises blessing from God because of his fruitfulness and, and affliction, what we just talked about. Jacob recognizes what God has done through the life of Joseph to provide for the family of Israel. So he blesses him for that. But to Judah, 
He promises royalty, that the scepter of rule will not depart from him. Jacob takes this language of Joseph's dreams about all the brothers that were bowing down to him, the thing that happened, right, when they were reconciled in Egypt. But he's applying it not to Joseph, but to Judah. I think it's very interesting for us to consider that it's, it's not the successful man, but the, re- the repentant man through whom the Savior comes. The Lion of Judah, the King. That's the, that's the promise that Jacob makes here that we see fulfilled all the way in the book of Revelation. Revelation 5, that Jesus called the Lion of Judah, who's conquered. And his place of promise, there's no more death, there's no more tears, there's no more crying. Th- th- this salvation that's wrapped up in King Jesus, that we have as a sure promise, uh, is, is a better hope than anything else the world has to offer. And that's what I want us to, to remember and write down as we near the end of our time this morning. God and his promises are a better hope than anything the world can offer. And Jacob dies after blessing his sons. And they bury him. And at the end of Genesis in chapter 50, the, the brothers of Joseph are uh, feeling some doubts and some turmoil. They're worried now that Jacob's dead. They're not sure. Are, is this fruitfulness? I, is this provision from God? Is this uh, protection in the land of Egypt? Is, is God's presence and, and, and all the things that God has promised that's happening, are these going to remain? And Joseph assures them, and it is great testimony to God fulfilling his promises, overcoming all kinds of evil. In Genesis 50, verse 19, But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people, or a numerous people, you might see as a footnote there, should be kept alive as they are today. It's an amazing testimony to what God has done through Joseph's life to preserve this family and to fulfill his promises. It's an amazing testimony to the fact that at the end of his life, Joseph doesn't say, it's okay that I went through all this suffering because now I'm ruler in Egypt. It's okay, guys. It's cool. I'm really rich now. That's not Joseph's point. His point is that God preserved his people. And so when we get to the very, very end of this book, I hope you'll see maybe with a a, a little bit different lens what the writer of Hebrews was saying about Joseph and his life and what he's saying. Because Genesis 50, verse 22, so Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the sons of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. If the fulfillment of God's promises for his people ends with Joseph, then there's no hope moving on from here, the rest of the Bible. We're done after the first book. But we know that's not the case. God does make good on his promises here. He, Joseph is not saying something new. He is remembering the covenant that was already given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God's already promised that he 
would be with his people for 400 years in this land where after Joseph dies, they're going to be forgotten. Joseph's name will be forgotten. They're going to be mistreated. And down the road, there's going to be a Pharaoh who oppresses them, who enslaves them. But God won't forget them because God's blessing is not bound up just in Joseph. It's, it's God's to give. It's God's to make good on. And so God will redeem his people through Moses out of Egypt. He'll carry them through all the way through and preserve this line that will get to Jesus, the one in whom all the promises of God, the New Testament writes, find their yes in him. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these promises. And what's amazing about Joseph is that this man who endured so much in his life, who accomplished so much, is remembered most for pointing to God's promises. When Joseph sends his bones to Egypt, I think he's saying this. I was made from dust, and I know I'm going back to dust. So I'm going to use every ounce of it to point to God's promises. I would rather you toss my box of bones under a tree in the land of God's promise than into me in the most majestic pyramid in Egypt. I would rather my life be a, a pointing sign to the surety of God's promises, to the surety of his character, his kindness, his grace, and his mercy, to his protection from death, his presence in suffering, and his provision for fruitfulness than anything else. Joseph doesn't want to be remembered for Joseph. We've got to consider the same. Christian, where are your bones going, so to speak? How are you going to be remembered by those around you? Is it wrapped up in what you've done? There may be some temporary, secondary good in that. And praise God that there are many who are remembered imperfectly that God uses to proclaim the gospel through. What a wonderful thing. Happened in the life of Joseph, for sure. But here's the reality. The New Testament's not a book about Joseph. <laughs> it's, it's not a set of writings about people of faith. It's about Jesus. And the whole Bible points to him. And our lives should reflect the same. We have a much better hope in Christ than anything else the world has to offer. Because all of God's promises are fulfilled in him. Let's walk by faith. And let's do so with this in mind. And in closing, I'll read this, what, what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. This creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been growing together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. We, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. May that be true of us. That like Joseph, we wouldn't hope for what we see and lament the end of temporary success, but worship God for the promised redemption 
of our bodies and our bones to be resurrected, to be glorified with Jesus, the one who has conquered death, the one who is still with us, the one who is multiplying his church. Let's live in that hope. And let that be the thing that we're remembered for at the end of our lives. Let's pray. Father, I, I am so humbled by this man's life and the things that you did through it. I, I'm just reminded once again of um, your grace to work through sinful men. Even to work through those who serve well for so long, who endure so much suffering, only to end up when they uh, have their fortunes reversed, um, still trying to take control, still trying to use it for their own advantage. And yet, um, there's just so many great lessons in here that your, your promises are more valuable than anything else this world has to offer. I pray we would live like it. I, I pray that you would help us to value what you have fulfilled for us in Christ so much more than these temporary things that we occupy our time with. God, I pray that for someone this morning who's realizing that their whole life up till now has only been bound up in things that don't have eternal value, that you would grant repentance. That they for the first time would recognize that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that you've promised. It's not in themselves, it's not in anything else in this world. And that you would, through their recognition of sin, through their recognition of what you've done for them through Christ, through his cross and his resurrection, that you would give them life and that they would begin to be fruitful for your glory god make us fruitful we need your help we need your spirit we need your power and god we know that your promises are true but we need the reminder of it so i pray that as we sing even this morning we would be um, knit together reconciled in you and with one another so that we might multiply we might be fruitful and that when the world looks at us, they see us pointing to a better hope than ourselves. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.